Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. And Santier joins him. And uh, we're about to embark on the second part of our podcast about sequels. Or more broadly, the relationship between one game to another. Yeah. Um, so we had a couple of questions that I think are good to ask yourself when you're looking at sort of this, uh, looking at another game while making a game. Um, so this sort of this list uh, first is like, what do you intend to do? Are you trying to make something that's similar to a game you love? Are you trying to make something that will appeal to people that like a specific game? Or do you just love a mood that another game sets then you want to kind of capture that for your game? Like there's a lot of different sort of things that you may be trying to do. Uh, and what sort of thing you're going to end up making is kind of based on what your intentions are. Yeah. So when you're looking at that, it's uh, like you said, it's all about your intentions, right? So if you're trying to capture the specific elements of another game, then it's really important that you actually look at what the elements of that game are. So we come back to one of our earlier definitions, the concept of the Narvis Odd, which is the narrative, the visual, and the audio elements of the previous product. You'll be looking at what defines those elements of the game. And then also you have the mechanical identity of the game. What makes the game play the way that it does? Yeah, and it's kind of important to understand how the Narvazod and the mechanics interact with the game that you're looking at. And it's also important that the elements that you want to bring to your game, you need to understand how the mechanics or the Narvazod that you want in your new game will interact with the things that you're borrowing or being inspired by or whatever from another game. Another thing that's important to know is if you're what you're trying to do is capture some part of the audience. You're trying to make something that will appeal to the audience of another game. Like, let's say you look at, I don't know, Fire Emblem. Yeah. And you're like, I want to make a game that will appeal to players of Fire Emblem. Well, you have to understand what does appeal to players of Fire Emblem about those games. Yeah. You don't want to just rote copy it because you'll have all of the things that appeal to that audience and all of the things that bug them about that game. And you'll need to be able to actually discern between the two uh, when you're looking at your title. Yeah. And um, it's really important to not take the wrong lesson. For some reason, what pops in my head right now is the freaking Doom movie of all things <laughs> where... Okay, so so you'd think a game like Doom, which has the bare-bonesiest plot of you're a space marine in Mars fighting demons from hell. Yeah. Okay, that that is the plot. The scientists on Mars have accidentally opened a portal to hell, and now you're fighting demons. Yeah. Ignore the books. Just ignore them. <laughs> oh, man. If you've read them, you can't. But anyway, so the movie turns this into some sort of weird genetic thing and kind of like a genetic chromosomal thing where they get an extra chromosome and some people just like go crazy and other people turn into like demons and stuff monsters oh yeah they're not explicitly demons yeah and it's just like they turn it from this experience of a ludicrously a ludicrously crazy thing where you don't you don't have to feel any empathy at all for what you're shooting well and not not only that but like this ludicrous main character yeah of like i don't know like ridiculous well it's like he's a dude that yeah i'm fighting the demons of hell and they are afraid of me when i get stuck in hell i just punch my way out and then I shotgun them in the face. Yeah. Like, that's Doom Guy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's Doom Guy. <laughs> and that sort of Doom experience, turning it into kind of an action horror movie. An action horror movie that's trying... That it's, focuses more on the horror and not enough on, like... It, it completely botched it. And anyway, so what my point is, is when capturing an audience, you need to make sure you're appealing to that audience. And that movie failed to be a Doom movie 
because it failed to understand what Doom was. Well, yeah, it was trying to inject a bit too much substance. Well, it's trying to be alien. Yeah, and Doom is very much a visceral experience, and that's really what you would want to grab, yeah. at least. That's what I feel. Yeah, it, you're not trying to make alien. You're trying to make, I don't know, some destroy all the monsters through being an awesome badass. Oh, well, yeah, you're, I'm, it's kind of funny, but you're trying to make the Resident Evil movies. <laughs> <laughs> not having seen them, but that's that's possible. Oh yeah, they're they're super action oriented, which is very different from what they were their source material. Anyway, we're getting off the top off topic there. So, getting back to the concept of you want to make something that's related to a product, yeah. a follow up title. We'll say that. So then you have to ask, okay, what is it? What's great about the thing? What really appeals to people, and then um, what doesn't? Then let's say that you were specifically contracted to make a piece of a franchise, right? Or, or just in general to examine the idea of how do franchises handle making more games in that franchise? Yeah. Right? Because this is um, a good practical study mm-hmm. of some mm-hmm. of these concepts and some of the things that you're wanting to try to do. Because a franchise, like another game in a franchise is typically trying to do a number of things. They're often trying to capture mechanical elements, Narvazad elements, and they're often being made explicitly to try to capture part of the audience too. Yeah. That's one of the the big ideas with a continuing intellectual property is people recognize it and they're like, oh yeah, I like that thing. I want to go see it. Oh yeah, I like Star Wars. I want to go see, oh wait, maybe I don't want to see these ones. Yeah. But yeah. you know, um, <laughs> uh, jab at the prequels. But you know, it's we can say, oh, you know, uh, to date this podcast a little bit, Rogue One is going to be coming out soon. Yep. And um, it's like it's a it's Rogue One, and it's explicit in the title, a Star Wars story. Yeah, and we're like, ooh, that's super exciting because we like Star Wars. Yeah. Now it's a thing of like when you watch the trailer, uh, they do make a point of kind of showing you that the tone's a little bit different. Like it feels more like one of the books, um, in the mm, extended mm-hmm. universe than necessarily a de facto than than an episode movie. Yeah, but that's part of your advertising right there. Like when you go to the other Star Wars films, it is very heavily implied in the way their title is structured and the way that they're presented that this is a direct sequel to the rest of the series, whereas Rogue One is more of a more of a spin-off, I'd say. Yeah, well, it's it's a story that takes place in the universe rather yeah. than part of the overarching episode story. Yeah. And just looking at other things, too, you have the Assassin's Creed games. Like, they keep making those because the Assassin's Creed title... It carries weight. Yeah. Like, there's an Assassin's Creed movie that's going to be coming out. I want to see it just because I want to see how they handle it. Yeah, I want to see what they do with that because it's it will be a question of what lessons the director take from examining the series. Uh, and if they examine the series at all, that is a thing. But I want to see what happens there. I'm actually kind of interested. Yeah, and uh, hopefully Ubisoft has enough weight that they'll actually be able to make a movie that's about their games rather than... Rather than a movie that's <sighs> loosely related to it in very, very brusque terms. But yeah, I mean, even going back to that that terribly inaccurate Doom movie, it was borrowing from the Doom name because people were like, I love Doom. I want to go see a movie version of this. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't, but you know, it's that's the idea. So let's see how developers try to make a long-running franchise. And just one reason why they do this, by the way, by trying to appeal to that sort of market, is people like those games, and it's 
an easy marketing sell to say, hey, we're going to make a game that people are going to already like. It's kind of a win-win situation. You know, people get more of something that they want and developers get more of something that they want, which is money. Yeah, that's good business, mind you. Yeah, <laughs> it is a good business practice. Yeah, one of the things that is commonly associated with a game that's in a franchise is it's going to carry on the Narvazod. This is one of the most easily recognized ways to actually make something appeal to another audience. At least it's the most easily conveyed thing. If you take the visual style of one particular game and then you make another game and you put that visual style on the cover, like we haven't even gone into the gameplay at all. Yeah. People are going to be like, oh, it's another game in that series. Yeah, and you'll often see uh, core mechanical identity stuff brought along as well. Yeah. Um, because one of the things that people want is a certain amount of familiarity and consistency with their mechanics. Oh, yeah. It's important that a X game feels like X. Yeah. Like, a Mario game needs to feel like a Mario game. You could theoretically slap Mario on a game that's about digging tunnels. Dig a tunnel. Dig, dig like, a tunnel. Or you could be super accurate and slap him on one of those pipe puzzles. Oh, yeah. Like, you could do that, but, but that, that would be a spinoff, right? Yeah. Not a Mario game. Yeah, it would have to be something of where, like, you have Mario's name on there somewhere because you're using the character, but otherwise... you Sonic have... Spinball. Yeah, Sonic Spinball. Exactly. Perfect example. Like, that's a pinball game. Yeah, absolutely. And it just involves Sonic. So that is a, that is a great example of that where it's like we're carrying the Narvazol, but we're not carrying the mechanics at all. Well, we're carrying very, very small parts I of the mean, mechanics. I mean, the <laughs> only mechanic of Sonic spinball that you're carrying is I think there's technically some spots where you can jump and Sonic is in a ball. Yeah, you can spin dash in the game. That's the only other thing. Um, it's not in any significantly <laughs> useful degree. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so there's a couple of ways that uh, sequel games in a franchise or games in a franchise get handled, and uh, a common one is a sequel. Uh, so that's things where like Assassin's Creed 1 and 2, a lot of the Metroid games are sequels. Sometimes you'll get a reboot thrown in there. For example, the uh, DMC series, you know, you have Devil May Cry, Devil May Cry 2, 3, yeah. 4. Oh, DMC reboot time. It's like, or the, um, oh, what was it called? The Prince of Persia series. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Prince of Persia 4, although there was no narrative connection, and even the visual part of the game had changed to number 4, so that was actually much closer to a reboot than what they titled it as, which was a sequel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you'll you'll see that sort of stuff happen every now and then. So a another sort of uh, common thing that happens is kind of an archetypal story with uh, the Narvazod. Nintendo likes to do this a lot. Uh, so you see this with the Mario and Zelda games where you have sort of the archetype of what the story is. Yeah. So like a Mario game, somebody gets kidnapped. Yeah. Peach, a fairy, whatever, by Bowser, and you have to go and free them. Uh, and in the Legend of Zelda games... You have some evil force that's trying to gain control of the Triforce and rule the land, whatever, and you have to go to dungeons to, and beat this evil force. Like, you have the shape of the game is pretty archetypical. Yeah. And, like, you'll see those with the Pokemon games where you have to go and get your badges and you some evil teams trying to do something and they're bad and steal Pokemon and you have to beat them and then you'll do that and then you'll fight the Elite Four and the champion and become the champion of the world. Whee! Yeah, it's um, it's a thing of where you have the set of events that you always go through in the game. Um, the actual narrative that is told through those events might be significantly different from game to game, but you still have these base elements that are always there. Yeah, they have the same sort of shape, both in how the mechanical progression happens as well as how the narrative unfolds. Yeah. 
Uh, and you will even see that in something like the 3D Sonic games versus the 2D Sonic games have different archetypes. Yeah, yeah. Um, where the 2D ones tend to have a certain sort of like chasing after Robotnik through these different stages that basically has no plot. Yeah. Um, whereas the 3D ones typically have the plot of getting the, all the Chaos Emeralds so you can become supersonic to defeat the final bad guy. Yeah, and like that always happens. And it's interesting, too, because this actually highlights something um, when I'm thinking about like the Mega Man X series because mm. they have a very arch- archetypal way of going through things. And really, the Mega Man series, in general, almost always carries this along with them, um, which is just there's a bunch of bosses. You have to figure out which one to go to. Uh, and then eventually the end game area opens up and you, you get to go through that. The one of the things that I found really interesting when I was thinking about it. So the X series in particular, well, X and Mega Man series has the thing is where it's always the same bad guy at the very end. But that's mm. not necessarily required for it to be a sequel. If you actually had not Sigma at the end of the game, like it wasn't him that was pulling the strings all along, it would still be a Mega Man X game. And that was something that I remember really turned me off to X6, other than everything else about that game. (laughs) Because that game is horrible, and you will find all... Well, you will find tons of people on YouTube who corroborate with me on this. (laughs) I'm sure. But... One of the things that I thought was interesting about their narrative for the game was that they were going in a slightly different direction. They were moving away from what had happened in the previous games for the fact that they were supposed to be ended at X5, but I could go on forever about that. But then after everything happens, it all turns around and they're like, oh, and Sigma was behind it all. And it just... For me, from a narrative standpoint, that just kind of destroyed it for me. I mean, the game was already destroyed in other aspects for this, that, and the other reason. But that in particular just really took me out of it because it was just like, it really doesn't have to be him. He doesn't have to keep coming back. Um, That's how I feel about the Daleks. Yeah. (laughs) This is an example of taking... Well, I'm not going to say taking the wrong things, but staying too faithful to... to specific elements, elements in specificity between your sequels. Yeah. And just another quick comment, like there's a lot of other types of media that follow the sort of archetype thing. A lot of sitcoms do this. Yeah. Where they have, here's the way that our story always works. Yeah. Um, I kind of feel to some extent uh, some of the things like uh, Naruto kind of do this. Yeah. Uh, And I think Naruto is a really good example because keep in mind, I haven't seen all of it uh, because there's so much, but Mm -hmm. You know, have Naruto gets new powers. This is like adding new mechanics to a game genre or to a game franchise. Yeah. Whereas like, oh, now we have this. Well, we can't not have this in future games because it just makes it better. But sort of, I feel like Naruto can't remember any lessons he ever learns. Well, yeah, that was the problem that I had with, with this series as it moved forward. I mean, other than the fact that there were plenty of characters that were incepted but never really developed. And I could go on a whole long train about that. Um, but uh, Bleach and Naruto both did that sort of thing. But the other point of it was that in the earlier seasons of Naruto, every time they went on a mission, they were learning something to do, and it was really about being, well, in my opinion, it was about being ingenious as a ninja as well as being powerful as a ninja. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole point of Naruto was that he was the number one knucklehead, which meant that he was not a genius in any way, shape, or fashion. He had to work hard to figure out what to do. Um, And as we moved along in this series, 
Now, granted, he's justifiably, he should be getting stronger and stronger, but I feel like that theming was kind of lost on that character, especially when it turned out that he was secretly um, a master ninja all along. Yeah, or whatever. Anyway, there's other things that do this. Dragon Ball Z has the cycle of powerful threat shows up, kicks everybody's butts, everybody trains for it, and then a more powerful threat shows up, kicks everybody's butts, and everybody trains to beat it. Yeah. And it just keeps following that sort of narrative cycle there's something extremely valid about it uh, i think it's perfectly fine so you'll see these sort of of archetypes and how things work but there's more of course so you have things that aren't just the narrative aspect of the narvazad uh, so kind of carrying on sort of the visual and audio parts are also very important things like what does the music sound like what are the sound effects like how are the characters uh, styled like how do they look what sort of stylization is used overall for the visuals so these sorts of things are really important. Legend of Zelda and Mario do not have the same type of music. Yeah. Uh, Legend of Zelda and Mario don't have the same music. Mario's voice actor has not changed for years. Yeah. And you can even see how some of the stuff is kind of important with like the fan uproar that happened with the visual stylization that the Legend of Zelda Wind Waker had. I don't know how many potentially younger listeners remember this because it happened way back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But... I just remember there's just so much when, when those Nintendo powers. Now keep in mind, part of it was that this was presented first in magazine format. Yes, print magazine format. That's yeah. how long ago this was. But people saw that Wind Waker and they're like, wait, why doesn't it look more realistic like Ocarina of Time? Mm-hmm. And there was a huge amount of backlash. And I think most people today would agree that Wind Waker looks fantastic. Yes. It is aged super well. Mm-hmm. The HD remake was basically giving it a new set of shaders. Yeah. Uh, as well as a ton of mechanical improvements. But anyway, then you got Twilight Princess as a reaction to that backlash. Yeah. Where it went super grimdark because that's what everybody said that they wanted. Yeah. And so you get some of this where it needs to feel like a game in that franchise. And when it doesn't, the fans often have problems with that change. Oh, yeah. And looking at it from visual and even audio, like we get to things like in Star Wars, uh, the Star Wars, the movies, of course. Of course, you have the soundtrack, which is extremely, extremely bombastic. And there are plenty of people who who've talked about things with soundtracks and generic genericism happening in current theater. But like Star Wars, anything Star Wars would not be the same without John Williams soundtrack going on. Most definitely. There's a very specific way he approaches it that feels very heroic. Um, The layering, everything about it, it really screams space opera. But even beyond that, the the distinct sound of a lightsaber, whenever you hear wow, Wow. Um, that noise that the lightsabers make is so iconic, and you will always associate it with Star Wars or Darth Vader's respirator, of course. You just play that over any footage, any footage at all, and somebody's going to say, oh, that's Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it's, it's those things. It's amazing what a distinct sound will do for your product if you are very aware of it. And, I mean, Star Wars is the master of marketing so that was part of the reason they they these things stick around yeah and you can even see simpler things like the pokemon cries they haven't really been updated since the first time they're introduced like the the pokemon cries from red and blue haven't really been dramatically updated even in the newest games like newer pokemon get these much nicer fancier Sounds, sounds yeah but you like then you hear your old school spiro and it has like almost the same sound effect just better quality you know, the... 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that thing. Yeah, like those um yeah, it's interesting too cuz I remember when we played Coliseum and they the Pokémon were updated, they were in 3D and even there the sound effects were very lightly altered. Like you still got the general sound of what it mm-hmm. was, but it was still the the one that comes to mind is I don't even remember which one that is. Some of you Pokemon nuts out there probably have to remember that one. Oh, yeah, that's hitting my memory banks. And I want to say, I want to say it was a bug Pokemon. Yeah, I think that was, I know it was from the first game, I feel. But either case, we'll, uh, we'll probably just boot up Pokemon Moon or Sun and just go in there and find it and be like, oh, that's what it was. But yeah, all of those sound effects, they haven't really been updated from game to game to game. Um, because those are iconic to the series. You hear it. Yeah, um, it matters. Yeah, you hear it and you get it. And I mean, it's kind of like the one sound effect they changed in Pokemon Yellow because it was related to the anime, which was mm. Pikachu's cry. Yeah, Pikachu's cry is, is anime Pikachu. Yeah, because everyone knows that Pokemon and they're like, oh, that's him. And I was like, I, I still remember the... It's the kind of unsettling, thing. actually. Yeah, it was like... on yellow yellow. (laughs) oh man yeah like but yeah because i've been playing moon recently and yeah pikachu just sounds wrong Mm -hmm. saying basically pikachu yeah and it's a thing for people who are introduced to pikachu by the anime this sounds right to them right quite possibly yeah i'm remembering the sound in my head but i can't actually uh, replicate it with my mouth right now so (laughs) the pikachu one yeah. Mm. But anyway, so just moving along on our main topic, when you make more games to franchise, they typically carry on mechanics as well. Um, because, you know, players usually like those and they kind of associate with them. Just sometimes you get fairly drastic mechanical changes, at least to certain portions. Uh, so some examples of this is like the Legend of Zelda games, they usually have a fairly similar world structure. NPC interactions kind of often are kind of important. Uh, you have puzzles to solve. Combat mechanics, however, have changed drastically particularly between the 2d and 3d games because it doesn't make any sense to have them work exactly the same like you could you could have it the 3d game where you hit the button and link does a horizontal slash yeah and that's all he does but yeah (laughs) but they've made them more elaborate and and more in keeping with what you expect from a 3d game but what they change is not what is the heart of the the legend of zelda games right and you can see an example of where they messed with that with Skyward Sword. Mm-hmm. It really changed up both like the world structure and the reward system. So some of the things that they did with Skyward Sword, which is an interesting game, uh, I've heard it compared much more to Metroid. Part of the reason for that is the world zones are really highly segregated. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Skyward Sword, you have the, sort of this main hub area, which is above the clouds. And you fly around there on a large bird-like thing, mm-hmm. uh, an Archaeops, as it were. And you go to these specific holes in the cloud and you fly down in them and you get to one of the three major uh, explorable zones. Kind of like taking a a Metroid elevator. And these zones, you can't really get from one to another. Mm -hmm. Um, There's like a fourth small zone that I think connects to one of them, Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I've played it. But one of the other things that you see is the reward system is different because you upgrade your gear through a crafting system. This kind of cut down on sort of the amount of exploration that's possible because of this, the way that the zones were laid out. Very, mm-hmm. They're kind of linear and they were much more... Um, encapsulated. Yeah, encapsulated is a good word for it. And your reward for exploring is also a lot lower. 
because you kind of feel like you can get the upgrade stuff from any enemy like yeah. anywhere it doesn't require you to go to a specific spot like if you think ocarina of time and you think i want a bigger quiver yeah there are very specific things that you do to get a bigger quiver mm-hmm. very specific places you have to go very specific activities you have to engage in and skyward sword for the most part if you want a bigger quiver you just have to get enough monster parts to upgrade your quiver if i remember correctly yeah and that is not significantly mechanically different or even i'd say narvazadly different from getting the parts for upgrading your shield yeah the only thing that's special is if you want to get the special hyrulean shield you have to do a specific mini quest thing yeah and that feeds into a genericization of certain actions within the game yeah and it goes actually back to the problem that i have with experience and character progression mm-hmm. where you can get it from everything so it's not meaningfully specific to an area so you just try to find the optimal way of doing it or like grinding for gold in an mmo you just mm-hmm. find the most efficient way to grind gold and then that's the only content you do despite a whole world of content yeah. It's about making things have reasons to exist. What those reasons are. And with The Legend of Zelda, you had a f- sense that areas in the world mattered. Mm-hmm. In most of The Legend of Zelda games. Like, the Zora area is yeah. the only place uh, in, in Ocarina of Time where you could get a blue tunic. Yeah. Or there were specific locations that you went to to get bottles. Or you had to find the fairy fountains. Mm-hmm. Things like that. And when everything kind of gets funneled through a specific upgrade system that just the monsters are everywhere and that it just feels way more generic yeah than going down into a dungeon to find your item and technically you find your item through exploring stuff by defeating enemies instead of reaching an endpoint and that that really messes with part of the heart of the legend of zelda games which is exploring finding stuff yeah it's specifically world exploration as opposed yeah. to finding enemies it's interesting because there's there's almost an overlap to the way things work in the pokemon series where Mm. it's um if you want a new functionality or a new cool thing in you in one of the core experiences of the game which is you know doing the doing the battles against people then you've got to find one of the random encounters that you deal with um constantly right but the flip side is that in legend of zelda the core play of the game is really getting through the dungeons figuring out the puzzles doing these different things and every new item is not only a new tool for combat but more importantly it is a new way to interact with the world and that's that's really the reward um, and I feel that the upgrade system, first off, it added complexity to a space that probably didn't really actually need it in that way. Um, but also just it doesn't reward the same things that the game is really about. Yeah. So it's important to understand what the experienced players are looking for, particularly if you're looking to uh, mimic that experience. Mm-hmm. What it is about that experience that makes it that experience. What about it is it that doesn't? Yeah. You could have a Legend of Zelda game that's got more of a gunslinger combat. I think mm-hmm. you could do that. Yeah. I think you could successfully do that. And it would still have a lot of the feel of a Legend of Zelda game. It would probably be a little weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, bosses would be different. This makes me think of Jet Force Gemini, of all things. Hmm. Although the game's not quite a Legend of Zelda game. Like, you still have. You've got lots of gear and things, and your different guns are basically your different tools, but you don't do nearly as much exploring as much as you do just blasting the crap out of stuff. But the specifically the boss battles in that game, that's how, how I would expect boss battles in a Gunslinger Legend of Zelda game to play out. Yeah, um, but you can totally do that, and it could totally feel mostly like a Legend of Zelda game. 
Mm -hmm. right? And it's figuring out what's really, really important. And that's why sometimes you'll see a franchise installment that changes something and still feels like part of that franchise. Yeah. And then it changes something else that seems about the same size and does not feel like it belongs anymore. Yeah. We've seen that a lot. I mean, especially when we've got that first transition from the life in 2D to the life in 3D. Yeah. So many games had to negotiate that translation and only a few of them really survived. Mm -hmm. um, like I think back to Metal Slug, there's only one 3D entry in the entirety of the Metal Slug series and there's a reason for that. They could not actually translate all of the character that is in the Metal Slug 2D series and all of the freneticness at once into a 3D space. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible to do that. What I'm saying is that they didn't take the right lessons and figure out the way to really make that work. Yeah, you can actually see this as a problem with the Sonic games mm -hmm. as they jump from 2D to 3D because the heart of Sonic is not go fast. No, it's not. Everybody thinks that it is. But when you look at it, it's about having moments where Sonic feels really cool. Yeah. Like running across the water and it's broken up by moments of slower platforming. And the problem when they jumped to 3D was, well, first of all, Sonic Adventure was like trying to do too much. Yes. But let's look at something more like um, Sonic Generations 3D stages, for example. That's yeah. a later one. Yeah. Those more capture Sonic. Mm -hmm. But they'd spent a lot of time trying to figure out what things were. And when you look at some of the earlier ones, they're fun, but they're not necessarily Sonic. Yeah, it's a thing because there were two things that I remember very distinctly about playing the original Sonic games. One was that there was this sense of freedom. Like, I knew where I was going. Yeah. But whenever I went somewhere... I could have four different ways to get there. There was the, the top level path, which was the high skill path, because if you messed up, then you'd fall down to the second level path, you know, and you just keep falling down until you get to the bottom level path, which is usually the slowest one and also the, also the easiest one to traverse though. Yeah. Well, and it contrasts to the Mario games too, mm -hmm. where the, the Mario games are, tend to be more linear and have a deliberate sort of path yeah. whereas those older sonic games in particular and, and you're absolutely right are not about having a specific path they're about having a direction of travel yeah it's like sonic is because it goes back to the character right? yeah mario is very focused he's like i'm gonna save the princess i know where she is i'm gonna go after her i'm gonna get her also mario doesn't have as much character as sonic does no I mean, honestly uh and sonic is like I'm a cool guy. I want to do fun stuff. And, you know, Robotnik's over there, and I'm going to have fun getting over to him. Yeah, and there's a certain headstrongness yeah. about it where you're like, well, I'm not entirely sure where I'm at, but I sure know which way I'm going, and that's the way I'm going to go. That is Sonic, and that was something that I think they had a hard time translating to 3D. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, yeah, because that headstrongness of that's where I'm going, I know I'm going to get there, I just have to keep going in that direction is hard to replicate when you've got all of this space. How do you funnel your player to get yeah. there? And that's why we get a lot of the, you know, the structured loop sections, the set pieces that throw you into other set pieces and aren't really decisions as much as just this is where you need to go. You're going that way. Yeah. And some amount of it's also the go fast, like with the original 2D Sonic sort of structure, multi-tiered level structure. You can go fast because if you mess up, you can keep going. Yeah. Whereas in the 3D, 
what ends up happening is you just they make you go so fast that you lose track of your surroundings entirely. Yeah. And it becomes a very different sort of reactionary game. But anyway, um moving moving back onto our topic yeah. of uh, franchises. There's also some franchises that tend to have a more mechanical focus than a Narvazod one. So things like the Soulsborne series, Dark Souls 1, Dark Souls 2 and Dark Souls 3 mm-hmm. all have very different things going on yeah. with uh the aesthetics and a lot of that Narvazod stuff. Yeah. But their mechanical core is all there. Oh, yeah. Um, the Tales of series is, yeah, uh, visually it's anime style. Sound, you'll get a few things here and there. Storyline, it's a different story every time. Completely different world. It's the same kind of thing you have, like, in Final Fantasy. Right, which is another example of this sort of thing where you see things like Fyra, Fira, and Firaga. Yeah. And they, they keep showing up, you know, these same sorts of concepts from yeah. a mechanical standpoint. Um, and they often are expressed in similar ways, but not necessarily the exact same. And like the story of Final Fantasy seven is absolutely nothing to do with Final Fantasy six. Yeah, there's nothing to do. I mean, Final Fantasy six, the world ends. I, I think I can spoil it. It's been long enough. <laughs> uh, I think it's okay. Yeah, I mean, the world ends. Like, it's just gone in that game. So, and seven is completely different. A meteor comes in. And then eight is about witches and time travel. Like, and then. Doesn't that one have the gun blades too? Oh, yeah. That one has the gun blades and, like, mercenaries and things. Yeah. Like, there's. Like every every game introduces a completely different thing, but it's still a part of the Final Fantasy series because chocobos are in there or cocobos. I call them cocobos because I don't like choking bows. Um, <laughs> but those are in there. Uh, the aforementioned fires, firaga, firagas, all of those are yeah, in there. Yeah, the spell types, the categories, the way the spell systems often interact. Yeah. Um, and often I think the combat systems. Yeah, and a certain element of storytelling is in there. Yeah, there's a certain style of it. Yeah, and that's what links the Final Fantasy titles together. I mean, we just recently got Final Fantasy fifteen. I still consider it to be a part of the Final Fantasy series because, oh, those boys are so beautiful, um, <laughs> amongst other things. But there is a lot of things that link it to its predecessors, uh, from a narrative styling standpoint, from a visual styling standpoint, and from, uh, I guess we'll call it, um, recurring ideas standpoint. Sure. All of those things link it to the previous Final Fantasies, and, but mechanically, um, while it's still grabbing a few things here and there, mechanically, it's still really trying to be its own thing. Um, and that's, yeah. Yeah, and and that's actually a good series to look at for examples of borrowing concepts but doing it on a much looser scale. Yeah. Um so to just kind of pull this whole discussion back towards those initial questions of like what are your intentions? What are you trying to do? How are you going to do it? Um when you're looking at a previous game to inspire things in a game that you're working on, uh, it can be very exam uh, helpful to examine franchises to see you know what do the players use to tie games and a franchise together to what do they say makes it feel like it's you know they belong to each other and also it's really important to to know what games the players feel like don't really belong to that franchise other than like it has the title on there and figuring out why Mm -hmm. what is it about this game that changes the core experience too much yeah things like that or even, um, this is something else that can be helpful to look at in franchises, is when they change certain aspects and then something that's there doesn't work right anymore. Yeah. You can see stuff where, a good example actually, now that I think about it, 
is with Dark Souls 2, they changed how invincibility frames on your dodge roll work. Yeah. And that really damaged the feel of the game, I think, for a lot of people more than they realized. Like, the way that the dodge rolling works in that game is just, it made it not feel quite right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It changed something on a fundamental subconscious level almost. Yeah, and one of the big reasons for that is just sort of underlying how they implemented it. Mm-hmm. But because of how dodge roll felt in uh, in Dark Souls 1 versus Dark Souls 2, you can see that's not quite the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they tried to make Dark Souls 2 a little bit more RPG. Yeah. Uh, by making it where the number of iframes you have is linked to your stats. Uh, iframes being short for invincibility frames, which are frames where your character is invulnerable, by the way. Just want to make sure I define terms that may or may not be known. And so by changing how that worked, it caused a lot of problems for people with hitboxes. But the other thing that was a huge problem, and this is just kind of an implementation thing, just to be conscious about all aspects of how your implementation can make something feel wrong. Mm -hmm. The roles in that game were, as far as I could tell, an animation that did not change your character's position until it finished. Ah, so um, one of the, the things that would happen a lot in PvP, but you can see this with um, enemies as well, is once your iframes run out, you can be hit at the location where your roll started. Mm. This happened a lot with backstabs because you could roll away from somebody, and if they timed it right, they could basically zip you back to them in the backstab because your character model would often be facing away from them, so it could be backstabbed. Yeah. And because your position was still there where your roll started, then it would connect. Mm. So this was really noticeable if you had low iframes against a lot of enemies where they could hit you partway through your roll, even though you might be a little bit further away than and think I shouldn't be hit by that. Yeah. Um, this happened a lot with grab attacks mm-hmm. where you'd start rolling away from an enemy. They'd perform a grab and they'd grab you when you're mid roll, like rolling away from them. Yeah. And it seemed like the grabs were like super effective at grabbing you. That made the dodge roll just feel a lot worse mm-hmm. in and, that game. And so it was a disparity between the visual aspect and the actual presentation. And that was due to a specific change between how they worked in the first game and how they worked in the second game. And that was something that could alienate members of the play audience. Yeah, it made a lot of people complain about hitboxes. And I think the hitboxes were actually overall better in Dark Souls 2 than in Dark Souls 1. But because the roll box was worse mm-hmm. due to this technical issue, yeah, um, combined with lower iframes as a design thing, mm-hmm. it made the game feel a lot less fair to a lot of people. Indeed. But yeah, so following along with our initial questions, like, okay, so you got a franchise, you want to make something that either references it or is actually very closely linked to it. And we've gone over a few examples of that concept uh, in action. We've seen a lot of groups actually do this very successfully, and uh, some do it not quite as successfully. But one of the most important things to take away from this is the idea that when you want to make something that is linked to something else, that is a follow-up or is somehow related to it, the first thing you need to ask is, what really made it what it is? Ask it to yourself first, what did I enjoy about this product? Why did I enjoy those things? What in this product's implementation makes me enjoy that? And then ask that question 
of other people who have played the product and see what they have to say about that. And that's bringing us back to the podcast before this one. <laughs> yeah. And also to kind of add another thing to think about, if you're looking to take a specific part, like let's say you want to take a combat system from a game or something. Yeah. Because you liked it. You need to ask yourself, why did it work? You can't necessarily just transport it into another game and have it work. You have to make sure that it, it works and you have to understand why it worked the first time. Mm -hmm. So you can see where sometimes franchises or like reboots could potentially try to capture the essence, but they missed something that made the first game work. Or like sequels will sometimes be like, oh yeah, that was great, but let's change these things that we think we could do a little bit better and it breaks the entire feel of the game or things like that. Yeah. It's important to understand what was it about the game that made it feel like that game. Yeah. So, like, let's say you're trying to make some sort of cousin game, right? Where mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I really like the way that Legend of Zelda's world feels. Yeah. You need to make sure that you're capturing the elements that make the world feel that way. Where you have stuff that you find that's significant to how your character functions. That is rewarding your exploration well. Where you have locations that feel like they matter yeah it's like for my own example and i realized i should have actually mentioned this one earlier but um it's the step between the 3d prince of persia to prince of persia warrior within um as an example of something that actually did that poorly where mechanically it was a similar game you had a lot of the same stuff that you did uh, between the two games and from a standpoint of we had the same main character we had a narrative connection the problem was that they didn't achieve the feel of a Mediterranean fairy tale. Mm. Um, they did not achieve that feeling, and that really killed it um, in, a, in a lot of people's eyes. And this actually came from visual styling, um, because one of them was much drabber, more darker, was trying to be much more edgy. It came from the character of the prince. He was a very different character in this game. And also just the things that you ended up doing where the game was had more of a focus on doing combat, and combat was not really in so much as combat was not extremely well implemented in the original Prince of Persia. It was functional. It was good enough. Mm -hmm. Them focusing on the combat and Warrior Within and not really making it shine in such a way where it could actually be an asset to the product, oh. it just really killed it. Yeah. Um, but that's something to remember is, again, that was an aspect of what really made this work. Even when we got to the third game, I think they were still having some troubles because they just basically, they took both Narvis odds and mashed them together into a thing. Mm. Um, it kind of worked. It brought some people back to the series, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really successful. Sure. And I'm sure you could also talk about how DMC2 yeah. uh, oh. failed. Well, what are you talking about? We don't talk about DMC2. Well, it might be educational <laughs> too, though. Uh, but yeah, now DMC2 greatly failed. And a part of it was because DMC1 was in some ways a happy accident. How they found their gameplay in that game was there was a glitch. And they're like, this is fun. Let's go in this direction. I mean, Samonosuke's already got everything in the uh, melee combat survival genre game, which that was what Devil May Cry started out as. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're like, well, let's try something else. And so they did, and they made this really interesting combat system. It was a little bit flawed, but it was new and unique and shiny. And then they're like, let's make a Senkit game. And they didn't really pay attention to everything that made DMC 1, or rather Devil May Cry 1, as good as it was. 
Uh, and so Devil May Cry 2 is a completely different beast in how its combat works, in the way the camera functions, in the way that levels are actually structured. Bosses are completely different in how they work. You have this more open air structure to going through stages, so you're not actually funneled, which means that you don't actually have designed enemy encounters, which means that you don't get to actually test specific things. I could go on and on and on. This is why I don't talk about Devil May Cry 2, because I will go forever on this thing. Um, but yeah. But yeah, and it- <laughs> It, it highlights it's important to take the right lessons away from things. Yeah. So I think we've probably rambled excessively on this. But Most. yeah, it's if you're actually doing something in a franchise, it's important to look at what you're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. uh, with the next game. Um, if you're trying to do something where you're being connected to another game, either you're trying to do a, like a reimagining or um, probably if you're not actually in the franchise, you're probably doing something like a reimagining or a cousin or just being inspired by. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand how the elements of that, uh, that, that game you're looking to work and the elements that you're using, how they work and how to make them function in the thing that you're doing now. Yes, that is the final takeaway. And with that, I'd like to say we're going to go to the sign off. Uh, thank you for listening to us talk on all of these things. We love your listenership because it's not viewership unless you're looking at it on the YouTubes, in which case you're listening to us and watching the vernacular screen. But <laughs> it's uh, it's a nice thing. I'm going to make sure to put some cliff notes on there so you can go through and find your specific points. Um, all of our YouTubes actually have those on them. They're very useful for our next podcast, which uh, a little bit of an announcement. We're going to be calling this season one. Yes. Thus, we are moving on to our last podcast of this season, and uh, we'll be taking a small break uh, because doing these monthly is pretty crazy, and we're going to be looking into new ways to speed up the process and also uh, improve the overall presentation of this. Uh, That's the hope, anyway. So next time, we will uh, have a wrap-up for this season where we talk about a lot of the things that we talked about, kind of have a, uh, a review of it, as it were. Yeah, we'll talk about a few of the things that we really liked, and we'll note some of the ones that were like, if you're going to look at any of these, check these ones out, because these are our favorites. All right, so we're going to go to the sign-off now. So this is Redcoat signing off. And Cintier signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.